Hello everyone. This is our fifth day, or six if you count the Thursday. I only have to shave one more time. <laughs> you know, this planning mind, have you seen it? Have you seen the tendency of the mind that might already jump just a week ahead? What am I doing a week from now? Or a Thursday evening? It's so natural that the mind does it, but here we get to see it. And really get to see that life really only happens right now. And I have a little bit of a weird question, but it, it has some pedagogy, so please bear with me. Uh, has any of you on this retreat felt itchy sometimes? Just raise your hand if you did, like your cheek, wherever, you know, maybe, yeah, wherever, something bit you, you know, a large group, basically. <laughs> um, okay. Second question, be real. But just like mindfulness keeps it real. Okay, here it goes. How many of you scratched it away? Me too sometimes. But you can also raise the hand for the second question. How many times, or have you noticed maybe at least once, an itch arise, see it kind of be there for a while? and then pass away. Who noticed that? Wow. <laughs> you know, sometimes joy arises in the smallness of meditative accomplishment. <laughs> right? And I really encourage you to see the joy when that happens. It's kind of an unworldly joy. <laughs> it's not the joy connected to the latest whatever phone that we might want. Um, Speaking of joy coming from practice, I'd just like to take a moment that the four of us, so often we've been reflecting on how much joy we get just from being with you, being in your presence when you're silent, and also listening deeply to how you are kind of talking about your practice. It's just like a really, I love it when you come in, Booker, and bow, just a really deep bow to you for your practice. It's, it's, it's inspiring, it gives me joy. And you've all taken a great leap of faith to come here, especially for the ones who are new on retreat. This is your first time. Just really spending time with you. But you weren't alone, as you've noticed. You've been in a community of a hundred people for almost a whole week. And that too takes a leap of faith. There were moments as I was sitting where Chaz was, I would just open my eyes a little bit and just kind of look at you. You probably also did that around you maybe sometimes, right? And I sometimes just got goosebumps. Especially when this mind was kind of struggling with something or, um, you know, we've been talking about playing meditation, but we've been working also quite a bit, just a little bit. (laughs) And 
I really felt like this power to continue just by your presence. And there is something really special when you feel a connection with a group of people who are sharing the same intention as you. I was, um, I can't remember exactly when it was, but there was the Women's March in New York City um, earlier this spring, and uh, my wife Chantal and our boy Lou, we went there. And we didn't know anyone in particular. But, you know, there was this large crowd of people there, and we felt connected immediately. And I recently found out that for that, for that word, there's a, there's a cool Burmese word. They call it water drop connection. It's like when a water drops in the water, it's immediately part of it. And that's how I've been feeling with you. And I felt water drop connected. <laughs> now I'm using it in a sentence. When I heard you sharing your dukkha in the group meetings where you were really real with what was up for you. But also the flip side. My heart was also very open when some of you shared that that very same dukkha was seen, allowed to be there, and we also saw it go away. Some of you talked about really feeling moments of deep stillness, peace, joy. And tonight I want to talk about three things, joy, wonder, and friendship, and how they're connected, and how they can support us on this path. Because this is really a path of happiness. It might sometimes, especially in the beginning, feel like, you know, a path that is, we have to go through a lot of dukkha, but this is necessary. We have to see the obstacles that prevent us from being happy. And in our talks, and also in your practice, you've been reflecting on, you've been, reflect, been reflecting on the first noble truth. There is suffering. There is an unsatisfying quality that comes with all conditioned things. They change. They're out of our control, how they change. So you've sat here sometimes separated from the loved. Maybe your new boo, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and this rhymes, me with my little Lou. <laughs> I'm spinning it out right now. <laughs> oh boy. And you've also been had quite the opposite, where you were associating, you know, we were with the unloved. You know, I talked about Mr. Squishy Pants the other day on Friday. I, you know what, I was really in doubt on Friday whether I should share this story, but I feel like I can do it now. <laughs> One time on a long retreat, I was sitting in this particular hall, and there was a person behind me, and I've grown fond of this person now now. But they were like going like this behind me. (laughs) 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 And then quiet. And then I kind of, oh, it's gone. And And I was going to be right in that spot for six weeks. 
Well, you know what I did? I went to my interview with Carol, my dear, dear teacher. And Carol just out of nowhere goes, don't you know that we hire people here to push your buttons? <laughs> Seriously. And it just, just kind of snapped me out of it. Uh, but it's, that's the challenge of living together, right? We are sometimes challenged and sometimes highly inspired. I really had to get used to the culture uh, when I was coming from Holland and living in America in terms of retreat practice here. Um, it was just the drive up here for me was already one that made me feel a little like enclosed and captured with all the woods and the forest. And then when I came here, um, I really felt a sense of seriousness that I had to get used to. I didn't immediately feel like, like a, I wasn't reminded of joy immediately when, when I got here. And you might have that, that experience maybe too, where it kind of feels a little serious in the beginning. And then, um, and then there was the oatmeal. <laughs> you know, in Holland, we don't really do oatmeal that much. <laughs> and then especially not with cold yogurt on top. Cold yogurt, it stays with cold stuff. We don't put warm stuff on it. So that first morning I came down, I was like, wow. <laughs> and so um, joy wasn't arising. <laughs> it really wasn't. And as, as Chaz was saying, that the present moment is really, you know, for one with an acquired taste, oatmeal too. But now I eat it every day. I got my wife into it too, and she was first like, this looks like the stuff that they eat at the, um, uh, the Matrix movie when Neo, when Neo is in the ship, right? That sloppy stuff. Anyway. But the practice unfolded. I stayed here like you all did. And understanding started to grow. And it really takes time and patience. And that is also something that I truly respect in all of you, that you're still here to try this out, to come and see for yourself. Really seeing how understanding both dukkha and the craving that kind of lets the dukkha arise is really being seen. And that there's slowly, slowly more moments of lightness that start to arise. I've heard that this morning so much, where you talked about moments of peace and stillness. And I had that too in my own practice. And I must say, I was also really supported in connecting to joy uh, when I would go out here. And I've just seen most of you, you know, barefooted, you know, in the grass here on the lawn. And um, I remember one time I really opened up to nature when it was, it was about to snow. And not a lot of snow, though. And in the back right there, if you want, you can get bird feet. I didn't know. And so I took some bird feet and I went and I did standing meditation just in that forest a little bit over there. And I just stood like this. And I thought maybe, maybe a bird would come, you know? <laughs> Believe it or not, it did. There was actually about four or five little chickadees that first were checking me out. And then they came lower and lower. 
And then all of a sudden, one just came onto my hand. It looked at me and it took one, what you call it, a seed, right? One seed. And then, really, it was so beautiful. A snowflake fell on its eyelash. <laughs> That's what awareness does. You see things clearly. And then it winged. <laughs> and flew off. And just the wonder of that and the continuity of mindfulness. Powerful. So strong. Just because of that wonder that nature can actually provide us. And um, I know that we have, uh, in our group meetings, we said that we keep, conf- you know, everything that's been in the group meetings is confidential, and I really hope that you will honor that. Um, but one thing I do have to say that came out of it, it's very anonymous, but there was a lot of talk about bunnies. <laughs> and it was this morning, and it, you know what, there, there seems to be one or two bunnies here that when you sit like a Kuan Yin or a Buddha, and you're not wearing any socks, it actually kisses your feet. Wow. Again, that wonder. You know, can we be open to this wonder of life, of nature, that all of a sudden when the hindrances cool off, they still come up sometimes, but when there's more moments of really seeing this, wow, life is beautiful sometimes. I like how Albert Einstein puts it. He says, there are two ways to live. You can live as if nothing is a miracle, and you can live as if everything is a miracle. And especially if I'm just talking for myself, when I'm not mindful, I don't really live life as a miracle. You know, we kind of take it for granted. And... um, I really want to encourage you also to keep supporting your practice to see if there's places how you can connect again with that sense of wonder through expressions of music, of nature. I'll talk more also about friendship later on. I personally get a chance right now in my life, in this phase of my life, to hang out with a lot of two and three and four-year-olds. They're full of wonder. Really, if, if it's amazing. Um, Lou, our boy, will stop on pause for almost anything and just goes, Papa, look, poo. (laughs) I'm I'm big on poo stories. (laughs) Sorry. So I went into uh, the Buddhist teachings after I was kind of also inspired by my community of, of, of teachers here to reflect on joy a little more. And the Buddha identified three kinds of joy that... um, I'd just like to unpack a little bit. And the first one he called worldly joy. It is the joy that arises dependent on these five um, courts of sense desire, which is called worldly joy. So this is the joy that comes from wanting something and we get it. You know, where our senses are kind of, uh, there's desire and our senses are pleased in the way we desire it. You know, think of, you know, you really want to go on vacation and you make it happen. Or there is some new item that you really want to acquire and you get it. And there is a moment of joy connected to that. And then there's another type of joy. 
that the Buddha identified as unworldly. He talks about being quite secluded from sense desires. Sometimes we might have felt that here. Secluded from unwholesome states of mind, moments when the hindrances weren't present. That's a joy that kind of depends, that's independent on conditions that Chas also talked about. Joy that comes from being present, being here, right now, regardless of what's being known. And and then he talked about what, what is translated here as the still greater unworldly joy. And when I read that, I was like, hmm, still greater. <laughs> and then he talks about when a um, taint-free monk, so a meditator who has uprooted greed, hatred, and delusion, looks upon their mind that is freed of greed, hatred, and delusion, then there arises joy. This is called still greater unworldly joy which just hearing that makes me, inspires me, right? A joy when you look at your mind knowing it's free from greed, hatred, and delusion. And maybe on a moment-to-moment basis, we felt that. I call that sometimes awakening moments with a small a. You know, you have, how do you say that in English? Lowercase or cas? Lowercase. Lowercase, a where you just have these moments of there's not really something that you want differently or not want, this clearness. And I just aspire to more of these moments of small awakening. And the Buddha really encourages to cultivate joy. You know, you might think he really only encourages to look at dukkha in our lives, but no. And I remember how some of you in the interviews talked about how at times you'd really feel kind of like not knowing what to do with this stillness. I remember some of you mentioning, maybe I should dig deeper. Maybe, there, maybe I should go down into finding something in, in my past. I, I wanna, shouldn't I feel connected to the hindrances because we've been talking so much about them? And it's so sometimes it feels really new this place of stillness. And it doesn't have to be a whole set, but maybe just a few moments when it was like this release. Ah. The Buddha talked to his monks quite often saying, don't be afraid of this joy. It's an enlightenment factor. It supports us on this path. And you know, we talked about, we've given you a lot of instructions, but do you remember RAIN? The acronym of recognize, allow, getting interested in it or investigate and this non-identifying relationship to it that you try to apply, you can do the same thing with joy. I actually highly recommend doing it when there is that sense of ease and joy in the mind. To really become interested, what else is there? Usually when there's joy, there's energy in the body. It's quite often also connected to this willingness to be present, mindfulness. 
and most of the time you, you're interested, right? Now it's also really helpful to see what is the condition, what does joy condition? Because you can't be joyful the whole time, right? Sometimes joyful can actually feel quite intense in your body where your body might go like this sometimes. That's part of it. It can get you really heightened. But what follows is also very interesting to see in your practice. And what I've found for myself is very often it's followed by relaxation. Oh, tranquility. And then what I found out that that relaxation is also a condition for concentration. So often in my life I've been told, Bart, relax. And I would go like this. Or I was told, Bart, focus more. And through this particular practice, I started to see that what the most helpful thing for me to do in terms of relaxation is see if I can get interested in something, even if it's boring. As a matter of fact, in one of our group meetings, we kind of, the collective wisdom suggested in our group, what would it be like to be wondrous about boredom? Really have that same sense of wonder with this feeling of boredom as you would with a chickadee in your hand. So joy can be a very of great, great support on this path. And then what happens when the hindrances are not there for a moment, when the mind is not obscured, we get to see really clearly. Quite often on the retreat, especially in the beginning, we get to know a lot about the content of our experience, the content of sadness, the content of resentment. We get to know how it feels in our body. We get to know what thoughts come with it, right? But when we get more still, supported by joy, we're going to see much more the processes of our experience. And one teaching that the Buddha kept giving again and again and again is to see the changing nature of experience. To see the change in an itch arising and passing. To see the change in sleepiness coming and not taking a nap and going. And seeing the change of sadness or resentment come and go. Powerful emotions. And that you're not only aware of the content, but you're seeing that process. It kind of attunes the mind to the flow of experience. And this, this has liberating you know, qual- qualities. I remember one time really feeling connected to everything changing around me when I was doing the loop. You know the loop around the, uh, the pond? Just, just a trail where you kind of go in a loop and you come back at IMS. And all of a sudden I paused and I felt very connected to the trees moving a little bit, the wind, the sounds. And I really felt the sense of everything that was being known was changing. And then this subtle voice came to me. It said, trust impermanence. And when I told it to my you know, friends back home or my wife, they go, 
okay. <laughs> but at that time, it was framing a very deep, direct, experienced insight for me. So often when um, uh, I teach uh, young people, they ask me, Bart, why don't you have no tattoos? And this could be one of them. Just trust in permanence. Hmm? Seriously. And with that understanding came a sense of joy. This is from Leonardo da Vinci. He didn't probably know about Buddhism. I, I don't know, but he said, the noblest pleasure is the joy of understanding. Isn't that that unworldly, uh, unworldly joy? And very much connected to this is uh, another element on this path that I want to touch on, touch with you a little bit, um, is spiritual friendship. And I'd just like to take a moment, because I have the mic, to appreciate Papa Jazz <laughs> and these divine goddesses here. <laughs> For just you know, it's it's really, it's been very very supportive. The Buddha called spiritual friendship a prerequisite for awakening. It's a powerful statement. This is what he said. He he said, the Blessed One. Say they call him sometimes. He said, if wanderers who are members of other sects, sects. <laughs> Yeah, my English pronunciation, should ask you, what, friend, are the prerequisites for the development of the wings to self-awakening? I like that. You should answer, there's the case where a monk has admirable friends, admirable companions, admirable comrades. This is the first prerequisite for the development of the wings to self-awakening. Friendship. And you know what? I really needed to hear this. Because especially in my early days of practicing retreats and also reading stories about people going to caves, it really felt like I had to do it all by myself. And I, I did also. You know, in my room, sitting, reading some Joseph Goldstein book. Because um, sometimes in these in these stories, you know, in Buddhism, there tends to be this flavor of that solitude, solitude practice, you know what I mean, practicing by yourself, has a sense of, that's what, that's it, that's it. At least I believe. And um, actually, in one of the earlier sanghas I was in Holland, um, we didn't really connect much. We would come every Tuesday, we would sit, um, walk, sit, Someone would read something and we'd go home. And we were all devastated when all of a sudden someone from our um, community had committed suicide and no one saw it coming. And it really changed our uh, way of really wanting to get to know one another better, to connect. But then if you look at the Buddha's lifestyle and you know get more into the teachings, he was a activist, a community dharma leader, he was very much aware of that we are social beings. And one of the things I really like about 
every instruction in terms of mindfulness that the Buddha offers, I shouldn't say every, but a lot, is where he offers to be mindful internal, which we've been doing a lot, and also be external, so that you are aware of the other, and both, of the vibe that's in between you, or the, what's going on in the group. He even suggested doing this with the breath. What would that be like if you are opening up externally to the breath and really see someone else breathe? I once did that when Lou was a baby, and I was in this little room, and I could just see the belly rise and fall, and it gave me the same type of anchor than this body breathing. When we are more also attuned externally, and we'll talk more about this also tomorrow, we open up to the suffering and the dukkha of others as well. Do you remember Ananda, the assistant that Joanna talked about? He's my favorite character in this whole, you know, of all the, the characters. I'm not, I'm not disrespecting the Buddha here, but <laughs> you know why? He was so human. He wasn't fully enlightened. He was his cousin. And he was hanging out with him all the time. And what he did was he memorized, as it's being said, all the teachings of the Buddha because he was always with him. So we owe a great deal of respect to Ananda's memory because the first 400 years this was all memorized, right? Not put on paper or whatever. And one time one of his friends died, Sariputta, and he went to the Buddha Ananda and he said, your whole teachings aren't clear to me anymore. I feel like, wah, bewildered. And then the Buddha said, well, haven't I told you that all conditioned things come and go, even our loved ones? And really out of compassion, I think he also said, Ananda, be an island unto yourself. Which kind of also points again to, can we trust this own potential of awakening, our own wisdom, compassion, and kindness that we are born with. And then in another time, Ananda was telling the Buddha, and they were looking at a large crowd of people who are practicing nuns and monks. And, and Ananda said, isn't half of the communal life, isn't this holy life, no, isn't half of the holy life being in community? Which I thought, well, a fair thing to say. But the Buddha, with an exclamation mark, exclamation mark, said, no, don't say that. It's the whole of the path. So he really emphasized spiritual friendship. And you might have felt it here. Would you have sat 60 minutes by yourself for the ones who sat here for 60 minutes yesterday with with? Joanna and I, you know, all the times that you got up at five early (laughs) and be here, would you have done that without the support from everyone here? And then maybe also reflect back on these meetings, these relational practice meetings that we've been having. How have they been supporting you? And we'll have a lot of that tomorrow too. 
so many times someone would say something in a group meeting and a, a lot of the heads would go like this. <laughs> you know? Really getting in touch what I like to call the shared human experience. One time I was teaching at a meditation in a, um, in a high school in New York and we did relational practice too, like um, we'll do tomorrow. And the topic was judgments. And there was, um, we ha- I had the students one-on-one reflect on judgments about school. They were very chatty. <laughs> about teachers and students, very chatty. And then I had asked them to reflect on judgments that they have about themselves. And then it wasn't that chatty. It was whispering, but a lot of whispering. And at the end, we gathered in a large group. And there was one boy, Jonathan, he put his hand on his heart and he said, this might sound strange, but I'm so glad to find out that other people judge themselves too. I thought I was the only one. And he said, I'm sorry, but I feel grateful for that, to know this. I love the way Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, the Zen uh, teacher. We have individual eyes and Sangha eyes. You all remember what Sangha is, community? When a Sangha shines its light on our personal views, we see more clearly. In the Sangha, we won't fall into negative habit patterns. And then I, as Bart would say, most of the times. <laughs> Because we get some support when we see things through other people's eyes and they see our perspective with us together. It's just like, for example, I felt that very much. A lot of you talked about doubt in your group meetings. For all of a sudden, to me, it kind of dawned, doubt is just here. It's not connected to this person, that person. <laughs> Just, you know, based on causes and conditions, this human quality is present. And in spiritual friendship, it's not always easy. I'm not saying it's all hallelujah and stuff and find your community. Um, very recently, I had a, um, one of my teachers, his name is, is Gregory Kramer. He, um, a few years ago, he was uh, diagnosed with cancer. And... In his teaching, he really started to inspire me. He was pointing to what's called in Pali, Samvega. And he was really urging us to practice. Samvega points to spiritual urgency that you might also some, might feel in this retreat. You really feel touched by something and you want to continue kind of watering the seed that you've planted here or the, or the plant that's growing. And when Greg was ill, I really felt that sense of even more wanting to do this practice. And then we also really feel, have you felt joyful for someone else's joy? Maybe in the group meeting when you see someone reporting on something and you go, oh. And maybe not. 
or maybe you felt that joy when you were doing metta practice, or maybe not. Or maybe you felt not joy, but a sense of release when you did the practice of forgiveness. I really like how the Dalai Lama is such an example of a sacred friend. And it's, it's been told that he has a very specific attitude when he meets people. He tries to put himself in the mind frame as if that person that he's seeing, he hasn't seen them for 10 years with everyone. Can you imagine doing this with a family member or a co-worker or a fellow student or a patient <coughs> or someone who works in the deli? <laughs> And it's not always easy. I'd just like to share a personal story where I really struggled with a sacred friend of mine whom I owe a great deal, who has taught me so much about generosity, so much about letting go of hatred. But all of a sudden he said to me, "Um, can you keep a secret? And I think that's really part of friendship, that you keep secrets. And he said, "Um, I probably made a political choice that you don't agree with. And I didn't. And I could really feel a sense of like, huh? I thought we were on the same page with this. And... uh, And at that time, in the beginning, I couldn't be skillful. I just kind of blurted out, why? And uh, I was just real with him. And the following day, we had another conversation. And I really set the intention to listen to why, you know, he made that decision. That wasn't mine. And it was very helpful to be in that space together. Even when you're with people who, on the one hand, you consider a sacred friend, but again, it's just at Stuka, we don't control the other people's actions and what they do. This is from Bob Marley. He says, the truth is everyone is going to hurt you. You just got to find the ones worth suffering for. He he always keeps it real, too, and I appreciate that. And so I really hope, this is kind of the intention of this talk, that, that joy and wonder and friendship are being known by awareness when they do arise. Or maybe also after the retreat that you really maybe reflect on these elements, how they can support you. And I would like to close with a poem that I'm sharing as your spiritual friend because it's been so warm today. It's by Mary Oliver. It's called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who's eating sugar out of my hand, and who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. 
who's gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? I'm just inviting you to come home to this moment and the next.
Thank you for your kind attention. <laughs>